right, let's, uh, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your, your great word of truth, uh, that we have the, the great privilege of uh, looking into this morning. We thank you that uh, through the work of your spirit, that uh, you worked in the lives of uh, many writers to put down the words that you would have for us, uh, even today. Lord, we thank you that uh, we have truths, Lord, though, though written thousands of years ago, are, are the most uh, relevant words that we could have today uh, because they're your communication to us. Thank you that you have communicated to us. I pray that uh, we would honor you as we as we honor your word, as we look into your word, we thank you for the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that uh, convicts us, that challenges us through your word. Pray this morning that uh, you would be uh, magnified and exalted as we look into what your word has for us this day. Pray that uh, you would, through your grace and mercy, just work through, through each of us here. Through me as I bring forward the word, through the, the hearers, all for your glory, so that you may be magnified. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn, if you will, to First uh, Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking at a section in First Peter. We'll really be picking up on verse 3. Uh, might have been about a month ago now that I, I did the introduction in the evening service. So we'll recap some of that uh, as we go through. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12 uh, comprise one sentence. So it's kind of a, a lengthy portion. And Peter here, much like the Apostle Paul in the beginning of Ephesians, kind of jumps right into a long string of praise about who God is, what God um, has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. He he hits all of those points in this passage, and he does it with a specific purpose. But, but, but before we get into that, just by way of a little bit of a recap, uh, the book of Peter uh, was written by Peter uh, later in his life. It's assumed that it was written uh, prior to uh, the death of Nero. Uh, Nero died in uh, 68. Most most scholars put the writing of the book of Peter around 62 or 64, so the persecution of Nero uh, had begun, but it was, you know, he had written it prior to the, the death of Nero. Peter is writing to an audience of believers. These believers are scattered abroad. You can see that in uh, verse, verse 1. They're scattered about and primarily... This is due to uh, persecution. So he's writing to believers that are scattered uh, because of persecution. He refers to them as exiles. He refers to them as our, our strangers is another translation. And so he's writing to these, these individuals as, as a shepherd. You'll see in the later part of the book that he refers to himself as a shepherd. 
He is uh, guiding these believers. He is guiding them to how to have the proper perspective in the trials that are going on in their lives under the circumstances that they are under. Peter is uh, writing from, if you look at chapter 5, Peter is writing from what he refers to as, as Babylon. There's some debate about whether this actually means that he's writing from what we'd refer to as, as modern Iraq, Babylon, or if it was a reference to, to Rome. Uh, some think he was writing from Rome. And if you go through the scriptures, there are times where Babylon is just used as kind of a, a metaphor for you know, wicked, wicked cities, wicked regimes. So uh, both of these, there's valid reasons to go either way. On, on, on what he is saying here, and, and ultimately it doesn't matter to the, to the writing of the book uh, where he's writing it from. He just makes reference that he is with the believers that are in Babylon, and that's where he's writing from. There's another major theme that, that is developed throughout this particular, particular book, and I'd like to just kind of recap some of that because the, the main theme that, that comes about supports his, his, his written main theme. And the written main theme that he has, if you turn over to chapter 5, verse 12, he tells us why he is, he is writing. He gives us the purpose for his writing, but the, the secondary theme I will develop by looking at a few other passages. So in chapter 5, verse 12, he gives us the, the main reason that he is writing. And he says this, he says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. And so this is his main purpose in writing this letter. He's writing to these individuals that are experiencing trials, they're experiencing various things for their faith. And as, as we look at other passages, you'll see what some of those things are. They're experiencing, uh, you know, they're being slandered for their belief. They are being uh, ridiculed for their belief. They are seen as outcasts because of their belief. And we'll see those in some other passages that we look at. But we also know from the, the book of James and from Hebrews that the persecution that was happening at this, this point in time was, was pretty severe in, in places. Uh, writer of Hebrews tells us that people's homes were seized because of their faith, so they, they lost their homes. In James, we read about those that were scattered because of their faith, that they were they ended up getting jobs uh, working the fields for rich landowners, and those landowners didn't pay them, uh, took advantage of them, and some of them had, uh, you know, weren't able to feed their families. They had people in their families uh, die. Uh, they were being dragged into the courts. So we know that these are things that are going on. So Peter is he's writing to people that are likely falling into these particular trials or distresses in their lives. And he writes to them saying, this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. And this, the, this is referring back to what he has been developing in this book. He's been developing uh, God's character, who God is, what God has what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. He hits on all of those. And he says to stand for a minute, that means to, to be immovable. 
uh, to not give the ground, but to stand in who God is by his very character, right? God has lavished his grace upon us, and he says to stand in that, trust in who God is, and trust ourselves to God. So that's his main purpose in writing, and you can see that the the thread or the, the theme of persecution is carried all throughout the book. And we'll we'll take a look at those real quick just because I think it's important to kind of establish just the that that theme throughout the book. So we'll be turning around to each chapter here because he he hits upon the theme in every chapter. Verse one of chapter one, we can see that they're they reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So they're they're individuals that have that are scattered. Uh, chapter one, verse six. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Turn over to chapter two. And in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 19, he writes this, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin, you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, you find favor with God. We have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Now in chapter 3, verse 16. So chapter 3, 16, verse 16, that is. And keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now in chapter 4, Starting in verse 12, so chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree, to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. And then a, a final one to look at is in chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
So I know there's a lot of different passages there, but I just wanted to make sure that we developed in our thinking that the secondary theme of suffering comes out in this book all over the place. He hits upon it in every chapter. And that is why he is writing to these individuals. He's writing to these individuals to stand firm in the grace that God has shown them. So that's just a, a brief, a brief uh, overview of, of where Peter is going in this book, of Peter's purpose in this book. And I want to take a, take a moment just to read the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. So if you turn back to chapter 1, we'll start in verse 3, and we'll de- read down to verse uh, 12. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. Verse 12, so, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, and that the proof of your faith being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So again, Peter's, Peter's purpose in writing to these individuals is to provide them with comfort in the midst of their struggles, to remind them to stand firm in the grace of God, in who God is. In this passage, Peter starts, you know, he potentially starts in a place where we might not start when we are trying to comfort somebody. He starts with really just a a theological explosion of, of all that God has done, all that God is doing, and all that God will do. Again, it's, it's one sentence from, from 3 to 12, uh, very, very similar to what Paul does in Ephesians. And he, he hits on so many different theological themes. And he begins at this point, even to these people that might be, they might be you know, hurting, confused, you know, they're certainly displaced. They might be feeling abandoned, betrayed. But he brings them to a place 
of, of worship right off. And really, this is what we're going to be developing this morning, is that Peter's solution to these individuals that are suffering, that are under these trials, as Peter, in essence, to, to summarize, he says, when things are tough, when you're suffering, worship God. That's a simplification of what he says, but you'll see that develop as we walk through the passage. Again, Peter might not begin where we, we would think to begin. You know, oftentimes when we try to comfort one another, we, we might go to certain passages, certain truths, and, and, and don't get me wrong, those, those are good, right? Those are truths that God has put there for us to comfort one another, to build one another up. But Peter wants to take these, these, uh, these individuals, these people that are experiencing these trials, he wants to bring them to the place of, of worship. He wants to bring them to a place where their focus is on who God is and not what is going on in their lives, not what is going on in their circumstances, to understand who God is, what he is doing, what he is looking to accomplish. So he wants to bring them to that, that place of worship. He wants to direct them to who God is. You know, this is written by Peter, who is, identifies himself later on in the book as a shepherd. And as I was thinking through this, this is Peter, um, who was directed by Jesus on the beach. Uh, we read about it in, in John after, after the resurrection. Uh, Jesus speaks with Peter on the beach, and he tells Peter to uh, feed my sheep. And he says it to him three times, and I think it, it really stuck with Peter. And it was repeated three times, and this is one of the last conversations that he had with, with the Lord, at least that we have recorded. Um, and so it stuck with him, and as he's along in his years, he is... Uh, he, again, he, he identifies himself as that shepherd, and he is looking at this point in time to shepherd the sheep, these sheep that are scattered, and he is directing them to worship who God is in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their trials. So Peter really, he begins with a, he begins with a statement, but I think in the statement that he begins with, he's inviting us in as readers to worship along with those who are his original audience. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's just a, a statement of, of fact. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the verb to be there is, is implied. It's not in, in the original. It's, a, it's an implied verb. So if we were to do a, a, wooden, a wooden direct translation is blessed be or blessed the God and Father. And blessed means one worthy of adoration, one worthy of worship one worthy of praise. Uh, God is worthy of our worship and praise, and he's going to develop that throughout the passage. Because again, he's inviting us, along with these readers, to worship God for who he is, for what he has done. Peter doesn't offer any, any statements uh, in the beginning here that might uh, lead to you know, an, an abatement or a reduction or a lessening of their situation or their pains. He doesn't offer anything that might uh, mitigate the suffering. 
or alleviate the suffering. But he brings them to a place where they can, in their mind, plunge into theological truths about who God is. So Peter's taking a long view here. He's looking down the road. He's not looking in the here and now in the midst of the struggles that exist, but he's looking at uh, who God is, who, who, uh, what he has done in their lives, their, his purposes. And as I was thinking through this, thinking through what, what is going on in this passage and what Peter is doing, and thinking about how you know, I deal with trials or you see others deal with trials, at times it's in the midst of our struggles, our primary goal is not that um, not what God's primary goal is, because our primary goal would be how to alleviate the situation or extract, uh, extricate ourselves from the situation with the greatest possible speed how to remove the circumstances or how to minimize the situation. And oftentimes that is our primary goal. That's where we end up being in our thinking. But God's primary goal is altogether different than that. And he develops that throughout the book, but just to summarize, uh, God's primary goal is that which most effectively highlights His majesty and glorifies Him through our lives. And we see that in some of the passages that we looked at, that we read through about suffering that's in this book. So our goal should be God's goal when it comes to trials to suffering. And as, as I go through this passage, we, we could see that, that Peter has a lot of specifics about the suffering that they were, they were dealing with, but there's also uh, general ideas, not just those ideas directly related to their allegiance to Christ. And so that's how I'm going to be considering uh, trials and suffering as we go through the book in that general sense. It could be for, could be for our faith, uh, or it could be just those things that God has introduced into our lives because of his sovereign goodness. And I think just as a, as a point of clarity, as I was thinking through this, um, when I talk about, you know, sometimes our primary objective is to extricate ourselves or remove the situation or the trial or the difficulty. And I think just as a point of clarity, uh, I want to make the distinction that, you know, if we have... If we have uh, toothaches, we would, you know, we would certainly go to the dentist. God has provided various graces and means and mercies to deal with those situations. You know, if we have uh, some other injury, we might go to the, you know, go to the cabinet or to the to, to the doctor. But the main thing that I want to focus on as we go through this. And the way, what I want to think through is what is our perspective in those things? Uh, do we follow these things because we are discontent with the situation? Or do we see it as 
as I said, it's a means or a grace or a mercy of God that we have, you know, medical attention, we have medication, we have those other things. Think of it in another way, if we're under a trial where we have lost a job, you know, certainly God has given us the opportunity to look for other jobs. So that's not what I have in mind in, in particular here. What I want to think through is, is our general perspective as we go through all of those things. We have the ordinary means that God has given us when it comes to certain difficulties and trials. But do we rely specifically on just those things or are we relying on God who has provided those things? Or do we have a perspective that when the small things come, I can handle those, and when things get really bad, then I'll, then I'll finally kick those over to God, because I know we can do that in our thinking and how we behave sometimes. And we kind of have a, a joking saying that we, we say about us New, Englander, New Englanders is we say, I'm all set. We have that mindset, and we can do that at times, thinking that we can take care of the things, and if it gets really bad, then, then I guess I finally will go to God. So that's what I, that's what I have in, 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 in my thinking as we walk through this passage, as we think through these things. What is our perspective when we go through difficulties? And I want to make a distinction this, this morning as, we, as we're walking through, a distinction between what I'll refer to as pressure and what I'll refer to as stress. And when I say pressure, I mean something that is brought about from God, so it is by God's sovereign, providential, loving hand that he brings upon us, and we can see that in this chapter here, chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. He refers to it as the fiery trial. It's that which is placed there by God to refine. So pressure is that which comes from God that is there to shape us, to mold us, to conform us into the image of Christ. That's God's purpose in it. And when I say stress, by stress, I mean our response to that pressure that God has brought. So when we don't respond in the correct way, that brings about stress. Pressure is from God, and it can be good, and it's how do we deal with that pressure. Stress is typically what shows forth in us when we have not yielded ourselves to God. And in that, I mean, we, we, um, we might get anxious. We might get uh, to a point where we're questioning God's goodness. We're questioning God's mercy. We're questioning his plans. We might lash out or whatever it may be. And that's what I mean by stress. So as we go through and I use the term pressure, I'm primarily focusing on what God has introduced for our good and for his glory. If I say stress, I'm primarily focused on our bad reaction to what God has brought into our lives and not yielding to what God has. So that's just a, just a, a point of clarification and make sure that, the, uh, that I am clear on that when I present those, those terms. Peter refers to this, this process of God bringing pressure into our lives as, as a fiery trial, and he uses a the imagery of, of refining of gold there, and we know how that works. 
And that's what these various trials do in our lives. So when I'm talking about these trials, again, it is God's appointed circumstances, situations, or things that are happening within our lives. Because we know that God is sovereign, he is in control, he is providential in all things. And so there's no situation that comes in our lives that God is not aware of. Trying to think of how to to illustrate what what Peter is, is doing here. And all my years of surveying, I came up with uh, something that I, I think might might help illustrate what what Peter is doing. You might not be able to follow a, a survey illustration, so you could think of it as doing a hike in the woods or going for a, a hike in the mountains. So I, I was thinking through just all kinds of different job sites that I've been to, and uh, we've had a we've had a joke here and there that we feel like some of the job sites we've been to is is where Eden was, because it's so viney and so twisted that it has to be the first place where sin happened. Um, and I've been to sites where it's just, it's so thick, uh, it's so hard to get through. You're, it's just vines and thorns, and literally in, in places where it wasn't even possible to fall over. Like, you get tripped up in the vines, and there's so many vines that when you go to fall, you're just hung up. So it's just, it's so thick. Uh, you can't see what's going on around you. You just have to hack your way through. And then I think of what happens when you get to the end of that, that line that you're cutting through the woods. Uh, and I can think of a couple of different sites where this has happened. You get through the, the thicket. You get through the, the difficult part, and it opens up. And there's a couple of places I can think of. It opens up into a, a section of woods that has never been uh, cut. No one's ever cut the trees, so the trees are huge and there's no undergrowth. Looks like no section of woods I've ever seen, or I've had it happen where it opens up into like a meadow, so it's you know it's full of life. There's a beautiful stream. There's birds everywhere, and just behind me is um, a thicket that you can barely even get through. And I was thinking also of, of going on a hike in the mountains. You go up a steep rocky slope uh, as you're going up. It's it's difficult. You get tired. You get short of breath. If you're with kids, they say, are we there yet? Um, and I was thinking about that, too. They, I think at times they're just saying what we're thinking. Um, but you get to the top, and then the canopy opens up, and you have a, a beautiful view, and you can see past all the, the rocky slope because you're seeing creation, and you can enjoy creation from the top. And as I was thinking about that, to, to illustrate that, that's what, what Peter, in essence, is doing. He's getting us past the, the thicket. He's getting us past the, the rocky slopes, getting us past those paces of, of pain where there's not sure footing or where you're tangled up and getting a glimpse of something that is far beyond the current surroundings and the situation. So he's taking these, these believers to a place where they're going to reflect upon who God is, they're going to worship God and not get all tangled up in the thicket or, or live on the, the, the rocky slope, as it were. So in doing that, he's going to reflect on, again, I've said it, I've said it already this morning, he's going to reflect on what God has done, 
what God is doing and what God will do. And in all these things, it directs us to worship God. Worship God for, for who He is, for what He has done. I was also thinking about the, the life of Job as I was thinking through this passage and thinking about Job's statement where Job says, so we actually accept good from God, but not accept adversity. And that's quite a statement that Job makes there when you think of all that he had experienced. He had no understanding as to why. His friends were telling him he had done something wrong, and he said that he... He hadn't. He was going through his life. Uh, in the end, when God confronts him and God uh, majestically just pours out his greatness to who Job, uh, who he is to Job, Job can only put his hand over his mouth. And he's still not offered an explanation. He just brought to a place where he worships God. Thought too of the, the life of, of Joseph, if you think of the life of Joseph at the end of his life, when he speaks to his brothers, he says to his brothers, you meant it evil for evil, but God meant it for good. This too was a statement of worship. Right? He understood what God was working in his life. He understood what God was bringing about. He certainly had, he had pain, he had struggles. It was difficult for him to see his brothers. We can, we can read that. But he takes the long view, not the circumstances of life, and he says God meant it for good. James references this in chapter 5. And James says... Uh, you have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. I also have this in my notes from, from Jonathan Edwards as he's talking about a very similar topic here. And I, I think I might have shared this when we went through the, the introduction. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He says, true virtue never appears so lovely as when it is most oppressed. And the divine excellencies of real Christianity is never exhibited with such great advantage as when under the greatest trials. Then it is that true faith appears much more precious than gold, and upon this account is found to the praise of his glory. I'm not sure what he was reading at the time when he wrote that, but it certainly sounds like it could be right out of uh, chapter 1 here. So Peter, in writing to these individuals, he starts off letting these individuals know that, they, that he knows that they're experiencing trials. But in essence, it's saying to them, when life is hard, praise the Lord. And you may ask, uh, or you may think, or you may say, easier said than done. Uh, and certainly that is where the struggle lies. But we must remind ourselves of the truth of God's word and live according to the truth of God's word rather than through the circumstances of life. 
we must remind ourselves of what the truth of God's Word says and meditate upon it and let it sit upon us so that it affects us at times. When we come to God and worship in the time of our struggles and in our trials, uh, we don't give place to self-pity or whining or lashing out, those things that we so often can do, or comparison of others. Uh, this, is, this is what we do when we're living according to self and when we live according to the circumstances of our lives. This would be like being living in the, in the thicket or living on the rocky slope, not living past those things. So as we think through our lives, do we have this mindset and this heart cry of worship toward God? And I, want to, I asked myself one other question, and I'll ask it this morning as I was thinking through these things. Uh, what does it take for me to lose my joy in Christ? What does it take? It can be kind of a, a litmus test of our, our spiritual uh, maturity, or I guess, uh, I guess in a bad sense, our spiritual acidity. What does it take us to lose our joy in Christ? I think if we are honest at times, it takes very little. It takes very little for us to focus on ourselves, to focus on what is going on, to question what God might be doing. It can be very small things. Then I ask myself another question. Is, is the worship of God, is it a way of life for me? Or is it something that I do? If it's something that we do here and there, then when trials come, when difficulties come, it's not the thing that we would do. If it's who we are, if it's our very way of life, though pain and hurt come, if it is our way of life, we will still worship God. Though we might struggle in those things. You might also think, and as you think through these things, you might say, uh, well, you don't know my situation, and I, I would say that that is true, but I know the God of all comfort who does, who gives peace past understanding, and who is well acquainted with your situation, even to depths beyond what you understand. And he is worthy of all praise. I can answer this question in another way and say, I'm glad you asked. Because look here, look here into God's word and see who God is and what God has done. And so we'll continue throughout this passage now and we'll look at the seven foundational truths to direct us in worship of God. So Peter's going to lay down seven different foundational truths for us so that we might worship God for who he is. And if you look, the first is found uh, right in the beginning of verse 3. In verse 3, he writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll stop there. So the origin of all blessing is from God. He says God is blessed. God is worthy of praise. God is worthy that we be honored. 
but it is God who is also the origin of all blessing. In what has become to be one of my favorite passages in the book of James, James writes this, he says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So he says, every good and perfect gift is from above. And God is unchanging. And because God is unchanging, he can only give good and perfect gifts. And the foremost of those gifts that he has given, uh, James brings it forth. He says, he has brought us forth by the word of truth. So the, the chief of those gifts that God has brought to us is salvation. The foremost of those gifts is salvation. So God is the origin. He is the one that is most blessed. He is the one that is worthy of all of our praise and adoration, and he is the one that gives all blessing. So Peter begins with this focus on God, on who God is, on what God has done. I was also thinking about the, just the terminology that is used here, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about how often it is that Jesus refers to God as Father and how that's fairly unique to the New Testament. God is called Father in the Old Testament, but in very few places. Uh, most of the time, uh, references to God are, are references to uh, creation, uh, his, his power, but not, not often Father. But there are some passages that bring out the reality that he is Father. And there's a uniqueness to that that we see in the life of Jesus, and it's very uh, familial, right? It's very personal. And God is indeed a personal and close and nearby God. In Christ, we are united with Christ. In Christ, um, we are uh, united, and we too can cry out to God as as the writer of uh, Mark, Mark writes, Jesus refers to God as Abba, Father. Um, Paul picks up on this, and he says it in Romans and Galatians, that we have that personal relationship with God as well, that God is Father, that we can come to him at any time, that we can bring our cares before him. But we have a, a unique relationship with God, the one who is to be honored and glorified and magnified. And just as a side note, it's also interesting that, that Peter here brings out uh, the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He really emphasizing that God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by Lord, he's saying that he is the, the sovereign one. He is master ruler. Uh, Jesus referring to him as a savior the name that's also closely associated with uh, his humanity and therefore incarnation. And then Christ is the, uh, the anointed one. So God is the father of this particular individual that he's pointing out, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we have that same relationship. Jesus so often directs us to worship of the Father. 
Jesus fully leaned on the Father in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his struggles. And I read one of those already this morning. So in this intro, again, Peter is inviting us in to worship God for who he is, for what he has done, to honor God for his greatness. And he begins with just identifying who he is. He is the blessed one. Uh, Secondly, as he develops these truths about who God is, Secondly, he says this about God. It is God who, according to his great mercy. So this is God's, uh, this is God's drive. This is the attribute of God and his greatness that has caused us or caused him to exercise his great plan of salvation toward us. This word is a word that is used to express God's compassion and God's kindness toward us. It stresses God's loving kindness. And it's an attribute of God that he is not obligated in any way to express towards us. God, by his very nature and character, is compassionate. He is merciful. But we do not deserve mercy by the the very definition of the term. God's mercy is according to his own sovereign will, and according to his own counsel. When Moses asked to see God's glory, he says this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who gives mercy. And just because that was confusing. He does say that to Moses, but I was quoting from Paul, who was quoting from what was said to Moses. I think I probably said that in a confusing way. So anyways, that's, uh, that's Paul referring to what God said to Moses. So God has mercy on whom he has mercy. We as, as believers are those that have experienced God's mercy, God's compassion, God's loving kindness, we did not deserve it. And were it not for the fact that God in this compassion and loving kindness acted, we would remain children of wrath, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. God's mercy is of such an amazing kind or of such a profound quality that it was in a mercy that he had extended to us prior to the creation of the world. A mercy that was extended to us who are pitiable wretches that deserve wrath rather than kindness. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. So it is God who was rich in mercy. So Peter, in bringing us again through the, through the thicket up past the rocky slope, is 
inviting us to consider, to think about who God is. And he begins with reminding them of the mercy and compassion of God that has been extended to them. And if God has shown compassion and taking care of them in their greatest of needs, that is salvation, then surely God can see them through the temporary difficulties of life and work in them that which is most pleasing to him and glorifies him most. As I was thinking through the idea of mercy, too, I wanted to, to, to remind us that mercy um, came at a, at a cost, right? It was not at the expense of justice. God did not just overlook sin in his mercy, but that the payment was made in full. God's righteous justice was satisfied towards sinners there was a payment in full upon the cross. So God in His mercy brought forth a plan that would satisfy His justice. I love what uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. He writes this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus who God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So like I said, the, the mercy came at, at a cost. There was a payment. God's righteous justice had to be satisfied. And, and I love how Paul writes it there. Paul says that God is just and the justifier. He didn't wipe the sin under the rug, as it were. He didn't just overlook it. There was payment in full for sin. So God is just in declaring us who are sinful people, those who deserve his wrath, he can declare us just because the payment has been made. I want to read uh, just uh, the beginning of Ephesians again. And, uh, and as, as I was saying in the beginning, there's, there's times where we need to just uh, to sit and to, to think and have the Word of God impress upon our thinking. And there's times that I, that I do this because I know that I have not felt the full power and weight of what it says, so I rehearse what the words are in my mind and meditate on it. And again, I think of uh, the, the illustration, this is like when you get to the top of the mountain and you're aching and you sit down and you look at the, the grandeur of the view. Paul writes this, he says, right after he says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he says this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. I think that's a, that's a verse that we could let sit on us for some time and think on it and meditate on it. Because it is so rich in the truth that is there. And as we're thinking about God's mercy here, 
I'm thinking specifically of that phrase there, but God being rich in mercy. Remember, mercy is that which we do not deserve. We do not deserve the compassion of God. We do not deserve that we... Um, we do not deserve anything but, but wrath, right? We've defied God. We reject God. We turn our noses, as it, as it, as it were, to his, to his grace, to his care of us. Uh, at times we question. At times we think we are suited to offer counsel to God about how to best navigate our lives. But God is rich in mercy toward us. Then I was thinking of Paul's words as well. In Romans chapter 9, he says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy. And that's the thing that I was thinking about as I was, as I was reading, th- reading through Peter and preparing that, that concept of that he has made known to us the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy. And if you're sitting here this morning as a believer, if you have come to God through Christ, uh, repented and believed, then you are an object of mercy. God has poured out his mercy upon you. And again, if God is taking care of that which is most needful for us to be made right with him in Christ, then surely the situations of our lives are no hard task. And I think that is why why Peter is bringing us to this place of worship of who God is. I think of the the hymn writer, the hymn writer writes that uh, when we look upon the face of Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And I think that is certainly something that is true when we look and consider and think about who God is. The struggles, the difficulties, all of those things pale in comparison to the majesty of God. So that is the the drive. The, The first foundation that he sets for us is the origin, that all blessings are from God who is most blessed. Next we have the drive. What attribute or characteristic of God caused him to work in us in such a way that we would know him? I guess we have we have time for one more. Uh, next we'll do the the accomplishment. What did God accomplish through this? So Back to verse uh, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. So the accomplishment, God's work within us, is that God brought us to new life. We are new creatures. The old is passed away. Uh, This is the new birth. And as I was thinking about this morning, thinking about God's uh, work of uh, creation in Sunday school, how he created everything out of nothing, 
uh, the new birth is, is just like that, right? It's the new birth is we are spiritually dead. We have no spiritual life. And God creates spiritual life where it does not exist. Another uh, ex nihilo creation. No spiritual life exists for us until God works in such a way that we are made new. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And God has made us alive. Uh, Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, And you were dead in offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now work in the children of disobedience. Among them, too, all previously lived in the lust of their flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So this is who we were until God made us spiritually alive. I think when you, when you think of the, the new birth or you think of that reality, you probably most often think of John chapter 3, uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And Jesus says um, to him, you must be born again. And this is the birth that comes about through the work of the Holy Spirit that was in, within us. So God's great mercy was on us in such a way that he caused us to be born again. So God worked in us in such a way that the Holy Spirit gave us new life. As we read throughout the, the, the remainder of this uh, first chapter, if you were to read down through, we are also made alive by his word. God uses his word. He works in us through his spirit to give us new life. So again, for us who are in Christ, we are new creations. We are new creatures. The old has passed away. We now have spiritual life where we did not have life before. We now have a relationship with this God who is to be magnified above all others. And Jesus says in, in his conversation with uh, Nicodemus, that it is in this new life that we have eternal life. So this is this is who God is and what He has done. He is a God that exercises great loving kindness toward us. He lavishes His mercy upon us. He has done what is necessary so that we might be with Him. He has given us this new life in Christ. Spiritual life where none existed. So when it comes to trials and struggles and difficulties in our lives, Peter directs us to worship God. Remember who God is. Remember what God has done. Remember what God will do. And we'll get to that tonight. We get to where what he will do, what the ultimate end is. So Peter's comfort to these individuals that are scattered abroad is remember who God is, remember what he has done. Think on God's desires and goals and, and, and what he is doing with the difficulties in life. At times, I think we can be, um, we can, let me back up and make sure that makes more sense. So as I was thinking through Job, 
and the accusation that Satan had about Job is God says that it's skin for skin and hide for hide. If you would, you know, basically if you had touched his flesh, he would not believe. But even then, when Job is afflicted with sores, Job still believes. And so we want to be those that that have that that same mindset that we trust in who God is. We trust his character, his nature. We trust his faithfulness toward us. We trust the work of salvation that he has started in us, that he will complete it. And so when difficulties come, when we're in the the thicket or on the rocky slope, that we have that long view and we worship God for who he is and understand what he is working within us. So we will finish up um, with uh, the other four uh, this evening, and let us uh, let us pray. Father, we thank you for again just for the reality that uh, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you that uh, you are so immensely good to us. Shower us with your, your grace, mercy, and loving kindness. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be those that truly live a life of worship, that we would worship you uh, in the good and in the bad that we would worship you no matter where we are in life. Lord, we know that uh, the pain and the suffering and those things are real and difficult, but pray, Lord, that you would help us to think on you, worship you, knowing what it is that uh, you have in store to, to refine us, to cause us to grow. Father, may we be truly those that worship you, not because of the reality that uh, you have given us so many good things, but just because of who you are to us. Thank you for your goodness in these things. We thank you for this time we have to, to look into your word together. Pray the truths of your word would, would, would sit upon us, that we would think on them we would meditate on them, that we would truly reflect upon your goodness toward us and your mercy toward us, your loving kindness. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.